You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When it comes to the work of Christ, we tend to think of what Jesus has done primarily in terms of our individual relationship to God. And so we talk about things like a personal relationship with God in Christ. And we talk about how God has saved us, saved me from my sins so that I can have eternal life. And most of the time when we're talking through that language, it's kind of a vertical thing, isn't it? We've got God, we've got me, Sin creates separation between me and God, but Jesus, in His grace and in His mercy and His kindness, has reconciled me to God, and that's what we mean by salvation. And all that's right, and all of that's good, and all of that's true. But it's not enough. If we want to have a thoroughly biblical understanding of the work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's after, then we have to understand that our ways of speaking, which are focused primarily on me and my relationship with God in Christ and the Spirit, the Spirit comes to dwell in me, that the Bible speaks about the work of Christ far more broadly. It does speak about the work of Christ in those ways, but it speaks about the word, the work of Christ far more broadly. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a sense of the scope of the work of Christ. That he has come to save individuals, yes, by all means, absolutely true, and we celebrate that wholeheartedly, Amen. But he has come to save individuals, not so that we can just go on doing our private relationship with God, but so that we can be incorporated into a body, and not just any body, a certain kind of body. If we limit ourselves to the individual implications of salvation... And we don't allow the Scriptures to draw our attention beyond the individual implications of salvation and to look at how God rescues us and and how our salvation creates not simply a relationship with God, but a relationship with a people for God. Then we're missing out on a great deal of what Scripture says about what Jesus has done. Yes, Jesus saves individuals, but he saves individuals into his church. And salvation doesn't simply create an individual relationship between me and God. It does that, but it also creates for God a people. And in Ephesians 2, Paul is raising and answering the question, what sort of people does the cross of Jesus create for God? 
hope that became apparent as we read through the text. Paul is answering the question, what sort of people does the cross of Jesus create for God? And Paul's answer is that the cross creates an ethnically diverse group of people for God. And this isn't exclusive to Paul, is it? I mean, in Revelation, we hear about this this glorious vision of the saints. And it's 10,000 upon 10,000, 1,000 upon thousands, myriad, more and more voices together. And John says in the Revelation that the voices come from what? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we talk about the global church, but I wonder how often we look at the cross and say, Jesus did that. I mean, Holy Week is coming. Good Friday is coming. We're going to read through the passion narratives, and we're going to light candles. We're going to extinguish them, and we're going to sing about the cross, and we're going to do all of these things, and we will think about His great mercy and His saving power. But do we really take on board and really embrace the reality that Jesus specifically died to take people of different ethnicities who are hostile to one another and unite them in himself and in the spirit, because that's what Ephesians 2 says. And so Paul wants to fill in this picture. A lot of times when the church does focus on that, we make a mistake. When we do focus on the the reality that Jesus has purchased for himself of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, an ethnically diverse people, people from around the world, we focus on uh, attempting to mute the differences between us. We'll say things like, Jesus is colorblind. And by that we mean he doesn't pick favorites. Paul, however, would want us to know that the gospel that creates a multi-ethnic people does not erase ethnic differences, it glorifies them. That's the bottom line. The gospel does not erase ethnic differences, it glorifies them. Now, we've got to do some work to get there. So what sort of people does God want? Paul declares that Jesus died to create for God a single people, not two different peoples, but a single people from multiple ethnicities. He makes this point by addressing first Gentiles. Remember, raise your hand if you're a Gentile. That's all. Some of, we may not want to, but it's all of us. Okay, I get it. It's okay. You don't. Nobody really wants to raise their hand when the preacher says raise their hand. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So Paul is looking at this from a Jewish perspective. The Romans and the Greeks and the sorts of people Paul's writing to didn't go around thinking of themselves as Gentiles. They probably knew that the Jews thought of them as Gentiles or the nations or all the non-Jewish people or, or something like that, but nobody kind of really went around going, well, I'm a, I'm a Gentile, you know, what does that mean to me? That's not 
quite the thing. So Paul is writing from a Jewish perspective. He's taking a certain ethnic perspective, and he's addressing himself to people who are not Jewish, and he has some, well, what if, it, if you stop too early, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? Like, listen to what he says, and, and remember, we all have our hands up when he says this. So remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, raise my hand, right, because I'm sort of American by uh, Irish descent, which is very Gentile. Like, Irish people are very, very Gentile. Don't forget that. I'm glad. I, great. You Gentiles by, fur, by birth, people like O'Reilly, are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the, cir- the, the circumcision, right? And he's making a distinction, an ethnic distinction, right? Jewish people, because of the covenant with Abraham, circumcised, circumcised their sons on the eighth day after their birth. Gentiles did not, and they looked down upon and made fun of and ostracized people who did. And so there was, Paul is, he's a straight shooter. He is acknowledging the reality of this hostility. So you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, the physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Here's what you need to remember, Gentiles. Remember that you were, at that time, before Jesus came along, aliens. Now, let me ask you this. We can handle being Gentiles, but how do you like Paul calling you an alien? How does that make you feel? Anybody getting some warm fuzzies off the apostle right now? You feeling good about being an alien from Christ? Because that's what he said. That doesn't feel very politically correct, Paul. Come on. But he does it, doesn't he? Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, right? So you've got the people of God, Israel, constituted by God on Mount Sinai, a nation, and everybody else is outside of that. Here's God's chosen people, his elect people, his, that he has selected Abraham's family, and all of us who are not a part of that group are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. It doesn't get better in the next phrase. Next, he says, you Gentiles, remember that's us, strangers. We're used to thinking of ourselves as Gentiles. We don't probably like to be thought of as aliens. Now he says, you're a bunch of strangers. Strangers to what? Strangers to the covenant of promise. So God made a covenant with his people I will be your God and you will be my people. You'll worship me. I will be there for you. You Gentiles, you're outside of that. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Again, Paul, come on, man. Harsh. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. It only gets worse again. If you are an alien from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants of promise, that means, next phrase, you have no hope. (laughs) You are without God in the world. And so Paul, speaking as a Jewish man in the first century, addressing him to Gentiles, wants them to know, like, apart from Jesus, you are outsiders, you are strangers, you are not a part of the chosen people. 
The good news comes in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. And we can breathe a deep sigh of relief because God is merciful. And we begin to see that God, in choosing Abraham's family, in rescuing the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, in bringing them to the foot of Mount Sinai, in initiating his covenant with them, in forming them into a people who are not a people, in creating the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul calls it, this nation, this people, that God didn't choose them for the sake of long-term exclusion of the nations. He chose them because he desired to relate to the nations through them. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, everybody remember who that is? Say it with me. Gentiles, and all of us, I think, are Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, and near in what way or how? The answer is by the blood of Christ. So here's the thing for us, right? We tend to think, well, let's talk about the blood of Jesus. What does the blood of Jesus accomplish? The blood of Jesus accomplishes the forgiveness of sins, right? Amen. Yes. The blood of Jesus reconciles me to God, right? Amen? Yes. The blood of Jesus makes me a child of God, right? Amen? Yes. All of these things, but I'm thinking primarily how, as an individual, about my relationship with God. Paul wants to say the blood of Jesus takes Greeks, Romans, Italians, Europeans, Japanese people, like all the non-Jews, and incorporates them into Abraham's family. And that's not an extra thing. It's not a side benefit. It is the explicit, express goal of the blood of Christ. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died to create for God a multi-ethnic people. That, in this passage, is the point of the cross. How often do we think about the cross like that? When we get up on Mondays and we maybe set aside a little quiet time and we open up our Bibles and we read through a passage and we pray and we give thanks to God for saving us, do we give thanks to God for saving us or do we give thanks to God for saving a global people? I think we know where we tend to go. And if we want to be thoroughly biblical people, and I want to be a thoroughly biblical person, I want to be a pastor who leads us to really deal with whatever, the, like whatever the Bible says, we got to deal with it. Amen? And right here, it says, the blood of Jesus was shed to bring Jews and every other ethnicity into one family in Christ, and in the Spirit. Now, this should not be a surprise if we've read our Bible, even though it may be a surprise sometimes for us. When God called Abraham and gave him the covenant, in Genesis 17, he says to Abraham, you shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And he reiterates it. In verse 6, I will make nations come from you. And so Paul, in several places in his letters, 
looks at Abraham and says, hey, folks, like, and Paul was, he had a different view before he met Jesus, by the way. Like, Paul was the guy who was going around trying to keep the, the, the faith of Abraham pure. This is a Jewish thing. The Gentiles are dirty scum dogs. That's the sort of thing they actually said. You can go find the translations if you want to. And he was willing to use violence to keep the faith of Abraham pure. Then he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he started rereading Genesis. And he started rereading Exodus. And he started rereading Isaiah. And as he reread the scriptures, he said, you know, this global church thing is in the first book of the Bible. This global church thing is in Genesis. When God called Abraham, he didn't just say, I'm going to make you Lord over the nations. He said, nations will issue forth from you that your people, my people, will not be limited to a single ethnicity. God, from the beginning, has always desired that his church will be marked by multi-ethnicity. It's unavoidable if we read the Bible with our eyes open. It is unavoidable. You read on through the scriptures. Even Torah makes space for non-Hebrews to worship with the people of God. You read on through the scriptures and the prophets say the day will come when the nations will flood to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship the Creator You read on through the prophets and God says, one day those who are not my people will become my people. That means everybody who's not a part of Abraham's ethnic family, Hebrew, Israelites, all the nations, outsiders, us, thanks be to God, will be incorporated like we were not his people. But thanks be to God, the prophet said the day will come when not my people will be my people. And thanks be to God, that day came when God raised Jesus from the dead. You read the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to this day, saying, look, this thing is coming, it's not a secret, it's not hidden, this has been the point all along that Jesus, with his blood, died to take these two distinct groups and make them one. That's why Paul became the apostle to the nations. That's why he devoted his life. That's why he gave up kind of an upwardly mobile (laughs) career path to go be a bivocational pastor, church planner, doing his trade and planting churches and traveling around and getting shipwrecked and beat up and prosecuted and all kinds of things because he was persuaded that God's purposes have always been a church, a single church, marked by ethnic diversity. And so he goes to, he didn't go to Rome before he wrote the letter to the Romans, but he writes a letter to the Romans and says, hey, I hear there's some Jews and some Gentiles who are uh, having some disagreements about the nature of worship and aren't willing to sit down at the same 
table together because some of you want to have barbecue and some of you want to have a salad bar. That's chapters 14 and 15. And Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, tear down the work of God. Instead, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is not just Ephesians. It's not just Romans. It's actually in Galatians, and it's in part of Philippians. A significant part of the New Testament was Paul applying the cross of Jesus to ethnic hostility in the churches he planted or was serving. Big parts of it. Turns out, and Paul could tell us this, it's quite difficult. Stunningly difficult. Because, after all, we come on the scene in a state of hostility. Let me read through a little bit of this again. Jesus is our peace, verse 14. In his flesh he has made both groups. What are the two groups? Everybody remember Jews and? And all the Gentiles raise their hands. That's us. He has, he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. He has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. Anybody ever seen or read or experienced ethnic hostility? So it's not new. It's been around for a long time. Paul knew all about it, and he addressed it in this letter 2,000 years ago. And he says that Jesus specifically died to put a stop to it. So, so, so the next time somebody says, hey, why did Jesus die? One of the biblical answers is to put a stop to ethnic hostility. And that's pretty much a quote from Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. It's interesting. I don't remember the last time that was on a Bible memory verse card. He's not done. So he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. So again, there's the cross, and Paul says specifically, like, the cross is God's instrument for bringing Jews and Gentiles, despite their hostility, hostility. I can't speak today. Like, I'm messing up every other word. I'm sorry. Hostility into unity, to oneness reconciliation, healing. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 17, he comes to proclaim peace to you who are far off. And we remember who's far off. Gentiles are far off. Oh, Paul is a long way from Jerusalem. I'll just tell you that. We are far off. It's a long way away. And yet here's Jesus through his church proclaiming peace. He came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Through him, both of us, Jew and everyone else, Romans, Greeks, Chinese, Americans, Africans, Canaanites, like everybody, through him, all of you who are far off, have access 
you know, one spirit to the Father. And the result in verse 19 is that you're no longer strangers and aliens. So that's a relief, right? Because earlier he said, hey, you're all strangers and aliens. But that, because of Jesus, has been undone. The thing I want you to see here is that Paul acknowledges the reality of the hostility and applies the cross of Jesus to it. It's not, even, it's not just an application. It's the explicit purpose. Right? And so Paul understands that this hostility that has been literally going on for millennia, and we've seen expressions of ethnic hostility on the rise in the last 10 years in the U.S. And we've seen it before that in other parts of the world. Go back to Rwanda in the early 90s, where Hutus murdered 800,000 Tutsis in about 100 days. That's ethnic hostility. World War II was largely fought because of ethnic hostility. Jew-Gentile ethnic hostility. This is not new. Right now at this very moment, the Chinese government is putting in basically concentration camps a group of people called the Uyghurs. Like, it's not new, and it's not gone. We have a lot in common with the world to which Paul was writing. It's not a problem exclusive to the United States. It is a problem exclusive to the human race. And the problem comes straight from the Garden of Eden, friends. Because when Adam decided to rebel against God, he broke his relationship with God, but he also damaged his relationship with other human beings. First of all, his wife. And if you read Genesis 3, right, the curse after the fall is articulated in terms of con conflicting relationships. Adam and Eve, it ain't going to be all chocolate and roses anymore. This is going to be hard, and there's going to be conflict that has to be resolved. And it's not just them. The implications of that go out more broadly. One of their sons kills another one. And it goes out even more broadly, and very soon you get this stunning ethnic conflict in the Bible very quickly. Paul recognizes that. He shoots straight about it. And he understands that it is a deep, deep, deep-seated problem far more than any of us even have begun to realize, whether we like it or not. It's a massive problem that goes back to the very beginning. And God has been at work for centuries, millennia, to heal that problem in Jesus. And that is explicit and unquestionable in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is why Jesus died. To create for God an ethnic, a multi-ethnic church. His blood was shed. His body was broken. Thorns were pressed into his face. His hands were pierced. His feet were spiked. His back was beaten. 
that find every place of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, Chinese and Uyghurs, blacks and whites, and heal it. That's what the gospel is for. Now somebody may be thinking, why has a preacher got to go and get all political this Sunday? Don't you know you're supposed to keep politics out of the sermon? And here's my response to that. We have been conditioned to think about questions of ethnic conflict and racism in terms of politics. Paul would like us to realize that it's not really a political issue, it's a theological issue. And God has not given any government in this country or any other country, in this century or any other century, the one thing that can heal racism ethnocentrism, or any other ism for that matter. And that one thing, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is how Jesus heals racism. He dies to reconcile everyone in the world to God. And it turns out that if I've been reconciled to God and you've been reconciled to God, then we have been reconciled to one another. And that's true across every division, whether it's socioeconomic or ethnic or geographical or any other. His goal, Paul says, is to create in himself, right? In Jesus, in his body, on the cross, breaking down the wall of hostility. And we said we've all seen that wall of hostility. We've seen it on the news. We've seen it in the papers. We may have seen it firsthand. We've seen that wall of hostility. We may, because remember, he's talking to Christ, like Christians here, and the people, and we are to be reminded the people of God are not immune to these problems. We need to be willing to identify and confess them and receive God's healing for them. But he wants them to know that Jesus died to create peace. Not just between us and God, but among us. And among us and the people who live across town. And among us and the people who live on the other side of the tracks. And all of the cliches for people we'd rather not have around. Like Jesus died to find the hostility and take a sledgehammer to that wall. Something more powerful, he died to take his cross to that wall. And in his body, he makes peace. And this is the church's vocation. And that, friends, is the gospel brought to bear on one of the biggest problems in the history of the world. And there is no temporal institution or authority who has what it takes to heal it. Yes, some good things have been done in the last over the centuries in the halls of government. Typically, the good things involve them borrowing things from the church. <laughs> God has given the church the one thing that can heal the hostility and the division that we lament. God has given us the one thing it can actually transform self-centered ethnocentrists. If you haven't figured out what that word means by the, by the now, just <laughs> it's when I think my ethnicity is better than everybody else's. <laughs> a 
But Jesus came to heal that, and he does it with the gospel. He does it with his cross. And when we take the gospel in our hands and declare it to our neighbors and the nations, guess what Jesus does? He heals relationships. He reconciles a people to God of varying ethnicities. And he makes for himself a people through which he is glorified. Now, when Paul says this one new humanity, sometimes that has been misused to mute or, or squish ethnic distinctives. And I think that's a big problem because God is not interested in sort of taking people of different ethnicities and pretend they're all the same. If he did, why would he make people of different ethnicities in the first place? What God has done is he has given particular glories to every ethnicity. And when we come together in peace, those glories glorify God in all of his beauty and his magnificence. So several years ago, some of us went to Guatemala together. And uh, Flip, I was thinking about a conversation that we had. Thomas, I think you may have been standing there. We were walking around Casa Bernabe, just looking at the architecture and the structures. You remember what you said to me? You said, every time I come to Central America, I hope I get this right, I'm struck by the mason work. Like, there's something about Central Americans where they're just crazy good at this, better than everybody else. I think I'm paraphrasing you now, but that's the idea. I hope it's fair. And we were just sort of standing there reflecting on how God gives different people certain gifts. And if I don't ever go down there and see it, if I don't ever, or at least have somebody come back and tell me about it, and if I'm not exposed to different ethnicities and the glories that Jesus in his kindness has given to them, then my experience of Jesus and his body is impoverished. Let me put that differently. If my experience of Jesus is limited to experiencing him amongst people who are just like me, I have not even begun to experience the vast glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I took my son to Guatemala that year. First time... I experienced multi-ethnic worship. It was only multi-ethnic because we were there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was in Juarez, Mexico. And uh, I was 14 years old. You might be thinking, what in the world's a 14-year-old going to Juarez for? It wasn't quite as bad when I was 14. It's been a long time. It's very bad now. Uh, but we went, and we were building kind of a parsonage onto the side of a church. Uh, the whole structure, if I recall correctly, was... 400 square feet and a family of eight or nine was going to live in. And they were so great. And they had church. And so our team went. A bunch of, you know, kids, teenagers, and youth leaders from Opelika, Alabama, showing up at church in Juarez, Mexico. You can imagine what this was like. And I remember going in and, like, the roof, I, I had this, I remember it distinctly, had, you know, the when you open up, like, a, any, a TV or a stereo, you know the styrofoam that comes out? And if you're like me, you try to take it out very gently because it comes apart very easily. And you don't want your kids to get a hold of it because if they get a hold of it, like the, it's going to be a disaster and the place will be, a me it'll be everywhere. These Christians in Juarez were using that kind of stuff as insulation in the ceiling of the church. I just, I remember that. It was striking to me. I had no idea what anyone, anyone was saying. I kind of could figure out what was going on because 
people of God worship one God. It was, it, was, it was stunning and striking. And in that moment, I began to see as an adolescent, the work of God is so much bigger than I've ever begun to consider. And there are things happening around the world and the Spirit of God is here and He is doing things and I had no idea before I walked up in this place. And the same thing happened to me in Costa Rica a few years ago. The Spirit of God is doing things here and I had no idea. And the same thing happened when we went to Casa Bernabe a couple years ago. The Spirit of God is doing things here and it is special and it's different and it's not quite... And I don't really know what the best thing is, but the church here does because they are God's people and this is their place and it's their gift and it's their glory. And we don't come along saying, you know, there's no difference between us. There are differences and the differences are good because when they are brought together, we do more as the people of God. We talk a lot about the body of Christ, eyes and ears and toes and like we all have a job. That's true also across ethnic lines. And so, I think Flip is right. Central Americans are gifted with an ability to just make stunning. Like, if you've ever seen one of these guys work like a travel, it's mind-boggling. Like, I'm over there trying to like get this concrete smooth, and these guys are pop-pop, and it's done. It's amazing. And it's a glory. And it's efficient. And it's beautiful. And the stones, and it's magnificent. And I began to think, what, what are the other glories of other, and I haven't been to that many places. And I started thinking, well, Germans tend to be known for engineering precision. Like, that's a glory for them. God's just, like, has given them this gift of finely tuned. The Japanese. Similar, are very detail-oriented. And you know pretty much, if you get a decent guitar that was made in Japan, everything will be perfect. Because they do it right. And they're just, that detail is, is just really well done. And I began to think over the weekend, like, what are all of the other glories that God has given certain peoples? And I have no idea what they are. And how impoverished is my experience of the church because I don't know. God, in Christ, is creating a new humanity. Not one where we're all the same. Yes, we come to Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. We all come to Jesus as sinners who need rescuing. But when he rescues us, it doesn't sort of make us all the same. He takes the beautiful differences that he's given us and he amplifies them for his glory, for our good, and for the life of the world. The gospel doesn't erase those differences. It magnifies them. It glorifies and in Ephesians 2, that's why Jesus died. That is the explicit, outright reason that Paul articulates in plain letters. And it's how Jesus heals the world. We need to be thinking about the gospel 
Yes, in terms of individual salvation. But if we stop there, we have missed so much. And a lot of times we don't want to go there because it's so vitriolic right now. And it's so politicized. And it feels like people out there are taking circumstances that are really unfortunate and bad and using them for their own ends and their own agendas and we get that distaste in our mouth and we just want to go, I don't want to mess. Like, we don't want to go there. And that's where I want to say, friends, this is not a political issue. It is an ecclesial church gospel theological it's why it's about the atonement. And you, friends, you, like, get this. I mean, maybe you need to say I with me. We are the only ones in the world that the Lord Jesus has given the one thing that will make a difference. You know what that means? That means we can't ignore it. Like, if you're the only people who have the one thing that takes people from hostility to hope, we cannot ignore that. We want to. We'd rather mind your own business. We don't want to get canceled after all, or whatever horrible thing they'll do to us out there, right? But this is why Jesus died. <laughs> this is why he's called his people. The, like, why should we care? Because you're called by God to care. The question then becomes, like, am I just, do I ha am I willing to offer my body to Jesus to be an instrument of his healing? That's probably going to take some creativity. It probably won't look a lot like any of the options that are out there right now. It will look a lot like self-denial. And it will necessarily have the gospel at its center. That is who we are called to be. And I'm very interested to hear your ideas about what creative healing looks like. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.